turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. We're going to be looking pretty much at the same text that we looked at last week when I began this series of sermons that I've entitled Be Prepared, where we're going to be looking at various passages related to what we call the end times or the last days. We read a good section of chapter 24 last week, all the way through verse 36. But today we're going to look at just verses 1 through 3, and then we'll pick up in verse 32. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And of course, as we talked about last week, Jesus was there talking about the destruction of the temple that in fact did take place in 70 AD. And I'll mention that again in my sermon today. Picking up in verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley, they made their way to the Mount of Olives and they were probably looking out over the Temple Mount so that they could see the temple in all of its glory and majesty from a bit of a distance across the valley. As they sat there, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming? And the end of the age. That's the question that they wanted to know. And it's a question that we want to know as well, right? When will these things be? What are the signs? How can we tell when when it's all coming? All right, skip down now to verse 32. Jesus gives them some signs and he gives them some teachings in verses 4 through 31. And then he says this, From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. He says he, third person, but he's talking about himself. You know that I am near. The Son of Man is coming at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. That's good advice all the time at church, isn't it? Stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. 
Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give him their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. I took my sermon title last week from that question in verse 2 where the disciples asked Jesus, When will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And as I mentioned in those verses kind of that we read last week, verses 4 through 36, and in the passage that continues on, really, Jesus' answer to that question spreads all the way through chapter 4 and chapter 25 of Matthew's Gospel. And there are parallel passages in Mark chapter 13 and Luke chapter 21 as well. Um, But Jesus answers their questions by telling them about the events and the signs that will accompany the last days and the things that will precede his return. But as we saw last week, much of what Jesus says in his response to the disciples' question actually concern events that led up to and included the siege of Jerusalem and the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And yet at the same time, even though that's pretty clear in this passage, as you, if you read through those, through those verses, you can really get that sense. It's also evident that Jesus is also speaking about events that are yet to come. And the most significant of those events is his return, which is what the disciples wanted to know about and what we want to know about. And why I'm preaching this series of sermons, because with all the stuff that's going on, those are the kinds of questions that are bubbling to the surface. But when Jesus talks about things that have already happened, that have this fulfillment uh, in a very real sense in in the um, destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem, and yet we get this sense that there's still more to come, um, It follows a pattern, really, that we find happening and we find in much of biblical prophecy. And that pattern is that a single prophecy can often have more than one layer or one dimension of fulfillment. And in fact, if uh, you study Scripture and you study prophecy, what one of the things that you will find is that there are often three layers of fulfillment that we can see in um, biblical prophecy. There's often a historical layer where the prophecy is fulfilled in the events of history, and we can look back from our vantage point, and while for some people they may have been in the future still, we now can look back and say, we can see that this was a fulfillment of that prophecy. The fall of the Jerusalem, of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple is an example of that. Then there's often an ongoing layer of fulfillment where you can look at a prophecy, see the event, but then you can also see other examples that fit the same pattern or that, that, that follow on almost like, you know, when you throw a stone into the pond and you get the ripples, 
There's the event itself, but then you have these other echoes of that event that are there as well. And finally, often what you see is that there is an ultimate fulfillment that still lies in the future. And uh, when you notice that, you realize, man, that historical event and the ripples or the echoes are actually still pointing to something that lies yet in the future. And that's the main thing to which everything else was pointing. So there is historical, past, ongoing, and ultimate future fulfillment. Does that make sense? Okay, there's your lesson in biblical prophecy for today. And so, there's an example that we can see in that, in much of what Jesus says here. But if you look at verse 29 of Matthew 24, Jesus says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens, that is the cosmos, okay, Everything that we look out to in the world and, you know, Carl Sagan's the cosmos, right? Everything out there in the universe, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. When Jesus uses that imagery, he is actually drawing upon imagery that the prophet Isaiah used almost a thousand years before, 800 give or take, okay, um, in Isaiah chapter 13 when he was prophesying regarding the day of the Lord. And he uses that expression, the day of the Lord. And many people were looking in Jesus' day for the day of the Lord. And the disciples understood that when Jesus came, that would be the day of the Lord. But actually, if you read Isaiah's prophecy, you can see these layers. Because what he was actually prophesying about was not the end of time, but the end of the, of the empire of Babylon. Babylon was going to fall. And that was the, the near focus of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 13. And so he used the sun and the moon and the stars as a metaphor of those things that we consider to be permanent. We navigate by them. We know, we say, we tell each other, you know what, it's hard today, but the sun's going to rise tomorrow. It's going to be okay because these things are stable. The cosmos is stable. It's permanent. And Isaiah was essentially saying, Babylon looked strong and it looked stable and it looked permanent, but the day is coming when it is going to be shaken to its core. And the great power of Babylon, in fact, in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, which seemed so stable, ultimately crumbled into dust. And you can actually go there today and look at the dust that used to be the great city of Babylon. So you have that past fulfillment. And really, as you look through history, you can see if, if Isaiah's prophecy is setting the pattern, then you can see echoes of that all the way through history up until the present time. Those things that we look to as permanent and stable are repeatedly shaken and destroyed time and time again. 
Empires come and empires go, and empire after empire has crumbled into the dust. And we really are experiencing a season of shaking right now, aren't we? With the things that are happening around us. We're experiencing a a season of shaking. The things that we thought we could depend on. Like science, which doesn't seem to be able to yet give us good answers to what's happening. And the healthcare system and economic stability. Even toilet paper we can't depend on anymore. All of that shaking, the shaking of the cosmos, the shaking of those things that we thought were stable and dependable, all of that shaking ultimately points to an ultimate fulfillment when the world itself will come to an end. And Jesus is talking about that. Past fulfillment ongoing fulfillment, and ultimate future fulfillment. And that is the lens, I would suggest, that makes the best sense of what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 24. That all three of those things are going on, those three layers, historical, ongoing, and ultimate future fulfillment. Jesus gave them numerous signs, and we looked at some of them last week, and I'll just kind of go through some of them very quickly. In verse 7, he talks about natural disasters like earthquakes and famine. In verses 11 and 24, he talks about false prophets that would lead astray many people who profess to be God's people. In verses 5 and 24, he talks about others that would come that would claim to be the Christ. And particularly in the first century, um, around the time of Jesus and, and very shortly after, there was all kinds of messianic fervor. People were looking for the Christ around every corner, and Jesus warns about that. In verse 13, he warns about how lawlessness, that is moral degradation, the moral collapse of society, will influence many who believe, and their hearts will grow cold. And he warns about that. In verse 15, he talks about the abomination that causes degradation or desolation. And in verse 9, he talks about the intense persecution of God's people that is coming. And as we saw last week, all of those things that Jesus talked about were fulfilled, at least at some level, in the years leading up to the fall of Jerusalem. And so Jesus could say in verse 34, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. There is a very real sense in which everything that Jesus says there has already happened. But at the same time, we can look around us and say and recognize that the things that Jesus said are still being fulfilled. There are echoes of that that continue on in the centuries since. It doesn't take much for us to look around us and recognize the signs that in fact are still being fulfilled. Is there moral degradation in society? Well, let me think about that. 
Is there cosmic upheaval in our earth? Yes, there is. Are there false teachers who would lead us astray? Absolutely there is. Are there antichrists who are who are set against the authority of Christ? There are all around us. And yet, it's also evident that everything the disciples' generation experienced and all that has transpired since then is still pointing toward a future ultimate fulfillment. And that future fulfillment will culminate with the return of Christ and the final end of the world. Past historical fulfillment, ongoing fulfillment, ultimate future fulfillment. The challenge, of course, that that sets up is how do you know where you are on that spectrum, right? Are we in the ultimate future fulfillment and how bad do things have to get to shift from ongoing to ultimate? Anybody got any ideas about that? It's hard to, hard to know that for sure, isn't it? And that's one of the difficulties that this, um, that this sets up. But think for a minute, if you think about that, just step back and think about the implications of that, especially in light of what Jesus says in verses 32 and 33. He says, learn this lesson from the fig tree. Learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things, you know that he is near. He is at the very gates. Now step back from there and think about that maybe from this perspective of past Ongoing and ultimate fulfillment. Does that mean that when Jerusalem fell in 70 AD that Jesus was at the very gates? Yes, it does. That's what it says here. That's what Jesus is describing. When you see these things, I am at the gates. Does that mean that when Nero started burning Christians alive in order to light his gardens, that that Jesus was saying, remember the signs, I'm at the gates. Yes, that's what it means. Does that mean that when the Roman Empire fell centuries later that Jesus wanted his followers to remember the signs and conclude that he is at the gates? Yes, that's what it means. Does that mean that when the majority of Christendom fell into a season of superstition and error in the Middle Ages, that his followers that were true were to see that and say, he's at the gates? Yes, that's what it means. Does that mean that when World War I and World War II threatened to rip the world apart in the 20th century, that the people of God should be looking at these signs and concluding he's at the gates? Yes, that's what it means. Does it mean that when millions of Christians in the Soviet Union and communist China lost everything, including their lives for their faith, that they were to remember the things that Jesus said and conclude that he is at the gates. Yes, that's what it means. 
And does it mean that in our day, as the institutions we've assumed were so secure are shaken to the core, and we see the world descending into moral darkness and divisions of all kinds fomenting this growing cloud of hatred, does it mean that his return is very close at the very gates? Yes, it does. So, are we in the last days? Yes, emphatically yes. Should we expect Christ to return at any moment? Emphatically, yes. Does that mean he's going to return in our lifetime? Or whether it'll be another hundred years or thousand years before he returns? I don't know. Jesus made it clear that only the Father knows the answer to that question. The lesson of the fig tree, and this may be hard because we want to we want to be able to see the signs, but the lesson of the fig tree, I think, is relevant to every generation since Jesus first taught the disciples about these things. The message of the signs is clear, and it is a message for every generation that is tremendously relevant to us. His return is very near. He is at the gates. But the signs, as we look at that and we think about how history has unfolded, the signs are not intended to give us clues as to the exact timing and date of his return. They simply tell us he is near. He is at the gates. Don't forget. And the fact that we can't predict the timing of his return is really the focus of what Jesus says beginning in verse 36. From verse 36 on through the rest of chapter 25, the focus is, now what is it that you, why is it that you can't predict the return of Christ, my return, but what is it that I want you to to learn from that fact? So Jesus begins where we ended last week in verse 36. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. That's a pretty clear statement, wouldn't you say? And then in verse 37, through chapter 25 and verse 12, he gives four examples that emphasize that point. In verses 37 through 42, he talks about the days of Noah and the flood, and he uses that as an example to emphasize that point. Verses 33 and 34, he talks about a thief that comes in the night. Verses 45 through 51, he contrasts the good and evil servants. And then in verse in chapter 25, verses 1 through 12, he gives a parable of the ten virgins. And the, 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 the central theme there is, you don't know when I am coming. That's the central theme in all of those examples that he gives. And I want to look at them, at them briefly as we, um, as we conclude this morning. Pastor Brian's going to preach actually next week about the parable of the ten virgins. But I want to look at those other three. So look with me if you have your Bible still open in verses 37 um, through 42. Jesus begins this way. He says, As were the days of Noah, 
so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware. Notice that word? They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. The point Jesus is making here is that daily life will be going on as normal. Both those who believe in Jesus and those who don't believe in him will be doing all the things that people do. They'll be eating and drinking. They'll be getting married and they'll be having families. The righteous will be working in the fields right along with those who aren't righteous. And the righteous will be grinding at the same mill as those who aren't righteous. There will be nothing unusual or noticeable that will cause people to stop what they're doing and prepare themselves for what is about to come. On the surface, it will seem like any other day. But it will be anything but any other day. Because his coming, though it is unannounced, will be the occasion for a great dividing of people. That's what Jesus means when he says one will be taken and another will be left. There will be a dividing between those who are already prepared and those who aren't. There will be a division. All right, let's look at the next example, verses 33 through 44. Jesus says, know this. If the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. In other words, what Jesus is saying to us is we don't have the luxury of going to sleep and setting our alarm for 3.30 in the morning because we know that the thief is going to come at 4, so we have time to wake up and get ready to catch him. We don't have that luxury. We don't know when he's coming. So what's the conclusion? If we want to be ready for him, stay awake. Stay awake. Verses 45 through 51, Jesus tells the parable of the faithful and the wicked servants, and he draws the contrast between them. But you'll notice that the difference between them is not that one knows when the master is returning and the other doesn't. The faithful servant isn't prepared for the master's return because he has interpreted the prophecies correctly. The faithful servant is ready because he's been busy taking care of things all along. He never stopped doing what the master left him to do. And it doesn't matter when the master arrives, he will find him doing it. The other servant is totally unprepared because he assumes that because the master has been away a long time, there's no urgency. And he has plenty of time to get the house back in order. Kind of like those parties we used to go to as teens, right? My mom and dad are away, 
So we can have a big party here, and I know they're not coming back till 10 o'clock tomorrow. So as long as I get everybody out of the house by 9 and pick up all this stuff, then it'll look like everything's been fine all along. Jesus is saying, that's not going to work here. So let's go back to the beginning of this chapter and tie some of these threads together. Um, Alistair Begg, who, as you know, is one of my favorite preachers, uh, he um, drills his congregation with this phrase, and I think it's a good one. He says, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. That's pretty good, isn't it? I think we need to take that advice to heart as we look at this passage. There's a lot here that's obscure and difficult. But there are some things that are plain. And the plain things are the main things. And as we've looked more closely at this passage, I I hope that you have seen that there are some things here that are clear. The disciples asked Jesus a when question. Tell us when will these things be? They wanted to know timing. But as is often the case in the Gospels, the disciples are always asking Jesus questions, and the answers that he gives them are not quite what they were looking for. Right? He doesn't answer their question quite the way they were wanting him to answer it, but he does give them, and he gives us, what we need to know to be prepared. For the things that are coming. In two ways. And there are other ways. And we'll pick up on those in a future sermon. But I just want to point out two ways that Jesus gives them what they need. First of all, he gives them a warning. He warns them that there are all kinds of dangers that can render them unprepared. And just... Kind of go through that again. Verse 4. See that no one leads you astray. Some would be deceived, he goes on to say, by false prophets and false Christs. It's a warning. Verse 9. He warns them that their faith would be tested by persecution. And as we can see through history, there have been ripples of that warning. Right? And perhaps there is an even more intense persecution yet to come. And as I said last week, I wouldn't be surprised if we face that. It's a warning. And because they would be tested by persecution, many wouldn't stand up to the test. Many would fall away as a result of that. And some would even be those who claim to be believers, but under the pressure of persecution, they would betray other believers. And there would be discord between Christians. And Jesus is saying, be on your guard. See that this doesn't happen to you. In verse 11, he warns them that many would be led astray by false teaching. 
In verse 12, he says that many would fall under the influence of this world and its values. And as the world goes through these cycles of moral degradation, that many Christians would fall under the influence of that and their commitment to obedience would be dampened and their hearts would grow cold because they would become accustomed to resisting the Holy Spirit. I have to say, as I look at my own life, the greater danger to my preparedness is my is 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 my prosperity and the ease of my life and how easy it is to slip into hardness of heart. Verse 25 Jesus says, "See, I have told you these things. I want you to be aware of the dangers that you're facing so that you're not surprised by them." So that you know, and you will have the ability to stand firm through some really difficult times. And in verse 13, he gives us this assurance, and those who endure to the end will be saved. So that's the first thing that Jesus does. He warns them. That's one of the things that's very clear here. Second thing that's very clear is his call to vigilance. He doesn't say, let me tell you when I'm coming so that you know when to start preparing. He says, be prepared. My coming is near at the very gates. He doesn't say, let me tell you when I'm coming so that you can wake up in plenty of time. He says, stay awake. And he doesn't say, let me tell you when I'm coming so that you know when to start doing what I asked you to do. So that you can pull an all-nighter and clean up the mess. He says, blessed is the servant whose master finds him busy at the work when he returns. Because he's been faithful and conscientious all along. He doesn't say... He doesn't answer the disciples' when question by telling them when. He says, the time is now. My return is near. I am at the gates. Be prepared. Be ready. Be awake. In the end, it's a matter of the heart, isn't it? One of the things that has really come through to me as I've studied this passage is that our inability to know the timing of Christ's return, and I have to say that for many years of my life, I have assumed that this passage gave us a sense of timing, and I'm not so sure anymore. Because I think the main point is that our inability to know the timing is no excuse for not being prepared. That's the point. What does it say about us, after all, if we need to know that it's really going to happen in the next year or two? If we need to know that before we're willing to get off up off our backsides and do what Christ told us to do? What does it say about us? Augustine, St. Augustine, writing over 1,500 years ago, makes a really good point. He says, He who loves the coming of the Lord is not he who says it's near, nor he who says it's far. 
But he who, whether it's near or far, awaits it with all his heart. That's the point, isn't it? That sense of expectation and hope, even preoccupation where we live our lives and we go out into the field with one eye on the horizon, we sit at the grinding wheel doing the daily things of life with one eye focused somewhere else? Does that happen to you? We, I, I, I find myself doing all the, that all the time. When we have people over to the house, we can see kind of way out to the road from our window. And I find myself walking by the window looking to see if the person that's coming is coming yet. That's the idea. That there is a sense of preoccupation that, that there, yes, we continue, we keep on with life, but we have one eye on the horizon. It reminds me of Simeon and Anna in Luke's gospel when Jesus comes in the incarnation. And Luke says, what, they were among those who were looking for, who were longing for the consolation of Israel. They were looking for the Messiah. And it reminds me of Jesus' indictment of Israel's leadership because they didn't recognize his coming. In John chapter 8, Jesus says to them, If you knew the Father, you would recognize me. The prophets have told you. They've told you about my coming. And yet I find that you're totally unprepared for it. You're so sure that you understand all the signs, and yet here I am, and you don't know me. Because you don't know the Father. That is the most urgent question. Not what time is it, but do we know him? Do we know him? In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and do many mighty works in your name? But I will declare to them, Depart from me. I never knew you. We can be religious. And not know him. We can be a good person. And not know him. We can have the prophecies and the signs all figured out. And not know him. By the same token. If we know him. We will be ready. If we know him. We will be awake. If we know him. He will find us busy about the work he's left us to do when he returns. Amen? Paul says to the Thessalonians, You are fully aware, because you have been taught, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. But you are not in darkness. For that day to surprise you like a thief. Not because you know the signs. But because you 
follow Jesus, who is the light of the world. And because you follow him, you don't walk in darkness. For we are all children of light, children of the day. So then let us not sleep as others do. But let us keep awake. Amen. Let's pray. Father, these are challenging words for us. I can look at my own life and examine myself in light of the urgency of this call. And I'm troubled by how sleepy I can so easily become, how my heart can grow cold, how unprepared I can find myself to be. Father, help us, we pray, by the power of your Spirit to stay awake, to be prepared, and to remain busy and vigilant and conscientious about the work that you've given us to do so that we are ready and looking and longing for that great day. Help us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.